It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Oh! It's another knockdown. He's not getting up, Jim. He's not getting up, Jim. He's not getting up. No, he's been knocked out. It's over. Mamma mia, he's done it. Anthony Joshua defeats Vladimir Klitschko. AJ does it in style. Beaten down, hopeless, without an answer, and Lomachenko has made Rigondeaux quit. It's Fistionados with Evan Rutkowski. He's a good boy, you know. Hello, fight fans. It is Wednesday, July 4th, and this is the Fistionados podcast. That's right, I am recording. Wednesday night, you might even still hear fireworks in the background uh, here in lovely Playa Vista, Los Angeles. It's been a fun July 4th. I've eaten lots of pork and ribs and hot dogs, but I'm here. I am your host, Evan Rakowski, former HBO Sports Marketing Executive giving you my take on what's happening in the sport of boxing on your screen and behind the scenes. The email here is fistianados at yahoo.com or follow me on Twitter at fistianadospod. Not a whole lot of action from the last couple weeks, but let's talk about it briefly. On Saturday, June 23rd, there are no major fights of note. We can talk briefly about ESPN Plus televising the Martin Murray-Roberto Garcia fight along with the Miguel Burchelt, Jonathan Victor Barros fight. Official results, Martin Murray, unanimous decision over Roberto Garcia. Miguel Burchelt, KO3 over Jonathan Victor Barros. We do not have numbers for either of these, but I think they fall into a similar category. Personally, I watched the Murray-Garcia fight for a bit on my TV and then as a passenger in a car while we were driving to see friends. I think for the level of that fight, that is a perfectly fine way to experience it. Even though it was relatively close odds, it was a foreign fight with a late replacement. It really didn't mean a whole lot except to British fans. And I don't want to lose sight here that the initial matchup was BJ Sanders and Martin Murray, which, to be fair, would have been a, <coughs> excuse me, a very compelling fight. And I did think it was interesting to note that ESPN Plus used the UK feed and announcers. I I really liked that. The Burchell fight, on the other hand, had Teddy Atlas announcing with the TV Azteca feed. It was a fun fight. I mean, there's really no question Burchell was better. It lasted three rounds. I don't have a whole lot more to say about it beyond that. On Saturday, June 30th, we have Gilberto Ramirez with the unanimous decision unanimous decision over Alexis Angulo in a fight card that averaged 632,000 viewers. I did not see 
if there was peak viewership yet for the fight. But for context, Zerto averaged 741,000 in his previous fight on ESPN. Neither fight received a whole lot of promotion from the network. Let's talk about the undercard. Alex Saucedo, KO7 over Lenny Zapovina in a fantastic fight. The announcing team was giving it sort of fight of the year consideration in the moment. And while I think it had a round or two that certainly merits round of the year, I'm not really sure it should be in fight of the year talk yet. That being said, it was a great slugfest. I don't want to take anything away from it by saying maybe it's not quite fight of the year. It was obviously a fantastic fight. I think what we saw, we should be, you know, this should be more about building up Alex Saucedo, both as a TV fighter and a local commodity, especially in that Oklahoma City market. He clearly drew a lot of fans. And what it means for ESPN and Top Rank is that, well, you can't get too upset when viewership numbers dip slightly, but Zerto's style doesn't lend itself to great TV. And now that the World Boxing Super Series is is ending shortly, it's really the pressures on Top Rank to start finding compelling matchups for him, or start to just give other fighters the chances that he's been getting. I mean, look at Saucedo; he's clearly meant for TV with his style. He can be a ticket seller and provide an excited local fan base to make the broadcast more compelling. And he should be in the ESPN main event next time. That should be him, not Zerto, if, if that's what we're going to see from Zerto. I think he's the type of fighter core fans, and when I say this, I mean Saucedo, core fans will love and appreciate him if he gets more opportunities. So good stuff on the undercard. You've heard my thoughts about Zerto. I think most people feel the same way. I mean, there's lots of, you know, Z, 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 Zerto jokes going around. You know, it was a boring fight. Zerto needs to be matched up tough, though. I do I do think he's talented. He just needs to be matched up tough. I'm not going to talk right now about Canelo Triple G2 negotiations. That's been well covered in the media. I'll probably just do an entire episode on it, but more in the build-up to the fight rather than focus on the negotiations for right now. What I will talk about in a little bit of detail is the Facebook watch deal that Golden Boy and Main Events made on Monday of this week. If you follow me on Twitter, you've heard this mantra before. It's worth hearing again. Early adopters in these deals will be rewarded. I tweeted out an article that appeared on Variety detailing how Netflix has now become the number one choice for TV viewing, actually beating out cable broadcast and YouTube. And that's for everybody. It's especially true for the age groups of 18 to 34. And if you don't think that early shows like House of Cards and all the comedians who had specials go on Netflix early, if you don't think they benefited from that, you're crazy. I... I do. That all being said, I do want to put Facebook Watch into a different category than DAZN and ESPN Plus because there is no barrier to entry with Facebook Watch. It's the closest thing we're going to have to having fights air on NBC, CBS, Fox, or ABC because companies like Facebook and Twitter and the non-premium version of YouTube are, for lack of a better term, they're the tech companies 
that are capable of airing fights to a mass audience. What I mean by that is, what I mean by really no barrier to entry, these companies are all trying to do different things with their content than the, <coughs> the Netflix, the Amazon Primes, the Hulus, YouTube Premium, than those companies. And they're not really OTT products. Facebook Watch is something that literally anyone can watch. You don't have to have a subscription to anything to watch it. I think that's really important here in analyzing the deal because Facebook and DAZN have completely different goals as companies and they just shouldn't be grouped together. And it isn't just because one charges money for a subscription and the other doesn't. Facebook's goal with Facebook Watch is to increase user interaction for longer periods of time on their platform. This helps them sell advertising and the the more they know about their users, the more effectively they can sell ads. Facebook is worth a ton of money, not because it's free and because so many people use it, but rather because of the amount of information they have on all their users. Advertisers love that for several reasons, but on a very basic level, it allows for incredibly cheap, localized opportunities on one hand, it offers some of the most targeted information as well. And then finally, it offers incredible scale if you want it. What this means for Golden Boy and Made Events is Facebook offers a huge amount of people. And if they are going to quote unquote market the fight, their equivalent of on-air advertising should really just be that they can effectively target potential fight fans out there. They have more information, like I said earlier, than anybody else on what people like. And if people like boxing, they should be able to let those people know that a live fight is actually happening on Facebook Watch or in the buildup to the live fight, you know, their algorithm should alert you to it. And, and hopefully this is an incredible way to drive viewership. Those are the pluses to Facebook Watch for a deal like this. The negatives are that we have yet to really see a strong commitment to any live programming by Facebook. Now they've dabbled in almost everything they've done, be it live events for Major League Baseball, where I think they have like 20 games over the course of the year. They do the World Surf League. I think for college football, they're broadcasting nine Conference USA and six Mountain West games. They do some behind the scenes stuff. They had the Tom Brady show. But Facebook has never done a full hardcore commitment to owning a sport and making it feel premium. Netflix, HBO, and Showtime, no matter what programming you're watching, they all feel very premium. And if you're going to compare it to DAZN, if DAZN wants to succeed, it's going to have to accomplish that same premium feeling too. It's going to, it's going to charge a monthly subscription fee. Facebook doesn't need to do that though. And it goes back to their North Star, which is increasing, and when I say not Facebook, the company, Facebook Watch. Facebook Watch's North Star is increasing engagement time on their platform. And I think the type of fights that we're talking about here probably fit the bill. There doesn't seem to be a massive financial commitment right away. Remember, like, these are Jojo Diaz's comeback fight, like it's that type of level, Sullivan Barrera. And, you know, which 
To be fair to all parties, it doesn't deserve a huge financial commitment, but they're probably interesting enough to hardcore fans to tune in, and, and who knows who else they can identify in that potential audience out there. If Facebook can figure out whether or not these level of fights are intriguing enough to use their huge database of info to get casual fans to engage and watch, like it's a pretty interesting low-cost experiment for them. Like these feel like that sort of Tuesday or Friday night fight kind of level. And I, I think that's great. I think everybody wins here. I think Facebook can experiment with a sport like boxing at a reasonable cost. And Golden Boy main events get an opportunity to show a forward-thinking, data-driven company that their product can attract viewers. These fights are free to watch for all fans. And, you know, for all the social media snark about the sport of boxing trying it's best to make itself harder to watch for fans. That's just completely incorrect. You can watch these fights on Facebook, on your phone, your computer, your TV. If you have like a, you know, any kind of way of watching content on your TV, like Facebook or YouTube, there's plenty of devices that do that. I'm not going to go into that, but you don't even need a TV antenna to get NBC, Fox, CBS, or ABC for this. You know, while they may not be premium fights, you're getting the best reach. So I think good on both parties. For the deep dive this week, I wanted to take a look at Showtime and the year they've had so far, and mostly because they've now clearly emerged as the industry leader right now in the sport of boxing. And I want to take a look at how they've done that, especially over the last two or three years. We're going to focus on the first six months of this year, but we'll break down their matchmaking, which I think overall has been very strong, especially in 2018 their storytelling, how they present their shows, their fights, how they've developed their their fighter talent, the ratings they've gotten this year, and, and how they've marketed their fights, really. I want to start with where Showtime has come from, because for a long stretch of time, they were the clear number two to HBO in terms of boxing. Their viewership numbers were not great, although they did occasionally put on some great fights here and there. But there wasn't really a strong strategy in terms of their approach. And that all changed in a major way like seven or eight years ago. When it became clear that Ross Greenberg was leaving HBO as the longtime head of HBO Sports, and for all those not familiar with the circumstances surrounding his departure, I strongly encourage you to read Tom Hauser's series of articles that details the problems that HBO Sports was having at the time. Um, HBO moved to get Ken Hirschman, who was then Showtime's leader for Showtime Sports, to take over as the new head of HBO Sports. Showtime responded in kind by hiring Steven Espinoza, who at the time was a lawyer that represented Golden Boy and Oscar De La Hoya, among others. Without getting into the logic of why each of these moves happened at the time, this represented a major sea change in the way that alliances would shift in the boxing world, and it gave Showtime a major opening. First of all, remember, this was the Golden Boy era where Richard Schaefer and Al Heyman were major players in Golden Boy, and Floyd Mayweather was doing his fights under the Golden Boy banner. While it did take a little bit of time, one of the first major victories of the Espinoza era at Showtime was luring Floyd Mayweather over there. 
And at the time for the dollars that Showtime was guaranteeing Floyd, it seemed like a really risky proposal. For the lesser fights that Floyd took on his deal, Showtime took a financial bath. Like, take it from me, I, I worked and know the pay-per-view model and, and market very well. But for the biggest fights, the Canelo fight, the Manny fight, and eventually the Connor fight, Showtime made out really well, and they completely justified the contract. I mean, those are three of the four top pay-per-view fights of all time, really. This new contract and what ended up being a strong association with Al Heyman ended up working out really well for Showtime and for Espinoza. Outside of sort of the big Floyd pay-per-views, it did not pay immediate dividends, except for the brand recognition that Floyd provided now that he's with Showtime instead of HBO. But until maybe 2017, Showtime had a lot of fights that, quite frankly, HBO had when HBO was dominated by Heyman, Heyman's influence, let's just call it that. And that's like, you know, you see an A-side under the Heyman banner just having his way with a B-side that wasn't a household name or, or didn't match up skill-wise. You know, and then don't forget, there was a period of time where Heyman took his fighters elsewhere under the PBC banner to all kinds of different networks. You know, if the PBC had worked out and gotten a network contract somewhere, maybe we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. But it didn't work out on network TV, and that worked hugely to Espinosa's advantage because once that PBC investment money dried up, Espinosa and Showtime were in position to demand much more competitive matchups, and they have absolutely delivered on that. In 2016, Showtime had only one of the top 30 most watched fights on pay cable television. But in 2017, they had three of the top eight. Now, to be fair, HBO dominated the rest of the top 20 in 2017, but Showtime started to have fighters really emerge by 2017. And, you know, Broner, Wilder, a, a lot of other ones. And here's how far they've come. In 2016, the only fight they had on the list of the top 30 was Deontay Wilder versus Arthur Spielka, which really only drew like 500,000 viewers. You know, Wilder just did a peak of 1.2 million for his March 3rd fight against Ortiz. And I promise you, Showtime is going to have a much larger percentage of the top 20 or 30, however you want to, whatever you want to use as a measuring stick, of the top pay cable fights for 2018. I mean, they probably won't get the top spot because Gennady Golovkin, you know, had that one weird fight on May 5th, but they will have a significant proportion of the top 10, 15, whatever you want to call it, fights. And Showtime is in... I think we can say 30% fewer homes in HBO. That's obviously an estimate. But to even regularly draw similar ratings to them is a big victory. Um, I, and actually, I asked viewers if they had specific questions about some of this stuff maybe a week or two ago. One question I did get was about the effect of distribution methods that Showtime was using, specifically on Amazon Prime. I just... For the record, my understanding of how this works right now is that while Amazon Prime is an important distribution outlet for Showtime, it essentially is the same deal for them as if it's offered through a cable provider. 
And what I mean by that is Amazon keeps the information gained through the sub and does not pass it along to Showtime. Showtime would benefit much more by having the same person subscribe directly to Showtime by using Showtime Anytime where they actually have a one-to-one -one relationship with the subscriber. Um, but it should not be underestimated as a distribution platform, though. I think they do make a lot of money by that distribution outlet. But no major effect in terms of how they use information they gain or anything like that. Um, I think the biggest thing that has improved for Showtime, as I touched on earlier, especially since a lot of the PVC fighters have come back into the fold, is, is the matchmaking. And, you know, when the PBC time buy model started a few years ago, Espinoza went on the record saying that Al promised him Showtime would actually get a lot of the biggest fights. And as I talked about, you know, before, so far in 2018, we've seen that. I think Errol Spence is starting to enter that Gennady Golovkin territory where we're excited to watch him fight no matter what, even if it is against Carlos Ocampo. You know, we've already seen him fight twice. The Peterson fight, let's call that a real test. You know, we've also seen two of the biggest heavyweight fights in recent years with Anthony Joshua versus Parker and then Wilder Ortiz, which I mentioned earlier. And then there was the big light heavyweight fight with Adonis Stevenson and Badu Jack. We also saw really high-level competitive matchups like Hurd Lara, Broder Vargas, Santa Cruz, Maras 2. And there were some really good undercard fights along the way. What we haven't seen is a whole lot of predetermined outcome-type fights. And the Las Vegas odds, the, the betting odds, reflect that. One of the reasons I bring up fight odds in my preview section of this podcast is because those are the best mathematical report cards that currently exist in the matchmaking world. Those tell us a lot about the kind of fights that networks are putting on. And Showtime has done great on that end. Many of the fights I've mentioned above have had odds of, of less than three or even two to one. I mean, that's fantastic. The matches have also been made so that there's a real story arc where you can see either that there are big matchups coming right now or that there are they're building towards even bigger fight down the road. You know, we've seen that with Gary Russell and Leah Santa Cruz. Like, they've already talked about that on the air, and they've kind of set it up in the way they've made some of the matchmaking. You're starting to see it. I mean, Adonis Stevenson was sort of the poster boy for not taking anything seriously, and finally we saw him in a good fight. At 154, you're going to see that with Hurd and Charlo, and, you, and you've seen the matchups build towards that. We're starting to see it even at 147. I mean, I think... There's a lot to criticize there with the way that Keith Thurman has handled things, but now you've got Errol Spence emerging from what was essentially like a hot mess at, at welterweight, and you've got a looming, I guess I guess now they're saying it might not happen until November, but the Sean Porter-Danny Garcia fight too, it, I'm looking forward to that. I mean, that's a great matchup. In terms of show presentation, I like what they're doing, but sometimes their shows do drag on a little bit, which if I still lived on the East Coast would be a bit more of a problem for me. The way that they do some of these extended segments on fighters in between fights, it isn't really an issue on double headers for me, but triple headers, it can definitely start to drag on. 
you know, that being said, I don't want to nitpick too much on this part of it during the actual show, but rather I think they can do a better job of, of sort of putting some of these materials out earlier pre-fight. And I don't know the answer for it. There was a certain way that we did it at HBO when I was there. And I think ESPN has started to do a much better job of it, at least in the weeks leading up to their bigger fights. Maybe not necessarily for some of their sort of second tier, like the one we just saw with Zerto Ramirez. Maybe not for that, but for some of their bigger fights, sure. When it comes to their marketing PR, it's really a mixed bag. And I think if anything is going to take their 2018 grade from like an A plus or an A to an A minus or a B plus, this is the area they'll do it. You know, on the positive end, I love the upfront presentation they did. Those types of stunts can be extremely effective and look at the results they got. Many, there were many entertainment industry sites that carried stories on them that rarely, if ever, cover boxing. They did a great job of getting the fighters' faces out there and really professionalizing like the look and feel of the sport and the way that they present it. It gave it a really classy treatment. And I think that goes a long way in getting more and better coverage from news outlets. You know, bravo on that end. On the plus side, you can also point to the marketing and the viewership number on that Wilder Ortiz fight that I mentioned earlier. You know, remember the context here. There was actually a Kovla fight on HBO the same night in the same city, and they still drew an incredible rating for Showtime. It averaged 1.1 million viewers. It peaked at 1.2, and the Kovla fight was like six or 700,000 viewers on its own as well. You know, from my vantage point, it looked like they had a pretty solid marketing campaign for that fight. It paid off. I mean, not only was it one of sort of, if not the biggest non-pay-per-view fight of the year, Certainly in the U.S., it delivered in the ring as well with a fun outcome, and that's really the best you can ask for. But now let's look at some of the results that need to be improved. I think I want to start with the light heavyweight fight between Stevenson and Jack, which averaged 535,000 viewers and it peaked at 611,000 viewers. Now, there was strong competition from the NBA playoffs, and I know there was some like I mentioned earlier, sort of Stevenson fatigue because of how lightly he'd been matched up for years. You know, but this was just a blip on the radar in terms of how much of a PR marketing push it got. I didn't see a paid campaign for it beyond social media. And given the significance and depth at this weight class, you know, the caliber of fighters involved specifically for this fight and the potential for some great matchups down the line, I think that was a mistake. It was a very pedestrian viewership number for a fight that deserved better. Now, I say that, I mean, remember, only a few years ago, Showtime was not cracking average viewership of 500,000 viewers all that long. So the fact that I'm calling 535,000 underwhelming shows you how far Espinosa has taken Showtime. But that's sort of, I'm nitpicking a little bit there. More importantly, let's move to this Anthony Joshua Joseph Parker fight. And let's take a moment to really focus in on this. And this is the kind of, this is the stuff that you really need to take a strong look at. And it can, and in a lot of ways, potentially can change fortunes at a network. 
you know, while this fight wasn't the most exciting thing to watch, remember, it was easily the biggest worldwide boxing event that happened so far. And the only fight that's going to be bigger is Canelo Triple G2 in September. You know, these weren't the Eastern European heavyweights that we've seen over the past decade, you know, either with hard to pronounce names, maybe fighting in countries with different native languages. These are big guys that are great athletes from English-speaking countries. They have a strong potential to cross over as stars in the United States. Anthony Joshua, <coughs> Anthony Joshua in particular, and he's someone I've talked a lot about on this podcast, mostly because he could be a generational star in talent. And to be clear, in the United Kingdom, and maybe very soon, the rest of the world besides the U.S., he is a once-in-a-generation star who is completely redefining what pay-per-view and live attendance looks like for an event there. He's the closest thing to come to come along. He, he's basically Mike Tyson. Like, he's the closest, he's UK's version of Mike Tyson, and he's the closest thing to come to that that we've really seen since Mike Tyson. I know... I know everyone listening to this show understands that, and you you probably understand that he's not there yet in the U.S. But let's just talk raw numbers. His fight on March 31st averaged 346,000 viewers, peaking at 379. And yes, there was a replay that drew 430,000 viewers, peaking at 483,000 later in the day. What I mean by that is, because his fight aired UK time, it aired live at like 5.30 or 6 o'clock, and then they showed it you know, I don't know, 10 o'clock, like whenever they normally show fights, you can combine the peak audiences and say that an audience of about 850,000 people saw both viewings for the fight. But to me, there's just no getting around the fact that those numbers, especially the live viewership number of less than 350,000 viewers is very disappointing. For context, the week before HBO showed the Dillian White six-round KO victory over Lucas Brown, and that's live. that same live broadcast time from the UK averaged 387,000 viewers and peaked at 444,000. The replay for it later that night averaged 427,000 and peaked at 490,000. Remember, HBO bought the rights to that air, to, they bought the rights to air that fight maybe like two weeks before it actually aired, and they still beat Showtime's broadcast, whereas Showtime had months to promote it. Let that sink in for a second, because these fights aren't even close to the same level. One was the sport's second biggest event of the year, and one was a fight between a decent British heavyweight and an out-of-shape guy who is probably not ever going to fight anyone of significance ever again. I think this is a clear marketing fail because there were lots of articles in the United States leading up to this fight. And I understand if Showtime was hesitant to put a big paid media campaign behind a fight like this because the audience at Showtime is not conditioned to tune in for an afternoon fight time for an event based in Europe. When I was at HBO, we dealt with this problem all the time with Triple G's fights you know, he fought there maybe once a year usually, but we still, we always put a, at least a small paid campaign behind those kind of fights. You know, given 
Anthony Joshua's contract situation, it really becomes a talent relations play. If you were Eddie Hearn, and that was AJ's last fight on his contract with Showtime, which it was, how would you feel about seeing a number like that? How is a number like that going to build a Deontay Wilder fight into a big pay-per-view number? It doesn't square up at all. And you have to be concerned, especially because Joshua is such a big star in the UK, and he doesn't need the US pay-per-view money. I want to emphasize here that we're still talking about potential star power in the United States. But the history of these types of things have huge ripple effects in terms of the fate of networks and the executives who work there. Just in recent history, Top Rank took Manny Pacquiao over to Showtime pay-per-view for one fight in May of 2011, and Ross Greenberg was out of HBO by July of the same year. His replacement, Ken Hirschman, saw Floyd Mayweather leave and do his last seven fights of his career at Showtime instead of HBO, and Ken was basically out a few years after that. Now, I don't want to suggest here in any way that losing a star of that magnitude is immediate cause to be replaced. And Canelo has gone back and forth from HBO to Showtime, back to HBO. You know, even in other sports, look at NBA GMs like Sam Presti or Pat Riley, who have weathered the storm of major free agents leaving. You know, even looking at Espinosa's accomplishment, I mean, the first thing you see as his accomplishment is he poached Floyd. But still, this is not a good situation. Fighters like Joshua create scenarios where entire departments at networks work in conjunction to dem. They want to work together to demonstrate why a fighter like Anthony Joshua should fight on Network X, in my example, is HBO, as opposed to any other network out there. We don't know where Joshua is going to do his next fight. And if he leaves and fights on DAZN, look, maybe it was just a fait accompli and there was nothing that was ever going to change it because of how much Eddie Hearn has at stake in DAZN working for the United States. But if you're Showtime, you want Anthony Joshua in the fold and you want that Joshua Wilder fight to take place on Showtime pay-per-view. There's just no getting around it. To me, that Parker fight was an all-hands-on-deck scenario where you had to show Joshua and Eddie that there was no place for him other than Showtime for his future. You make such a great argument that HBO or ESPN can't do anything better than what you're doing for him. And even though no one knew DAZN existed by that point, you need to make all parties realize that there is more money to be made by sticking with Showtime than going with any other entity, even if Eddie Hearn's best interests for his promotional company are to have Joshua fight on DAZN. And look, maybe it won't come back to bite Showtime, but maybe it will. On the series side, HBO famously had a chance to get both Mad Men and House of Cards, and both of the shows ended up not just going to another network, but creating another major competitor in AMC for Mad Men and Netflix for House of Cards. AJ is the type of fighter who could give DAZN enough subs to compete with Showtime for the long haul. This is all still potential. I want to be clear about that. But trust me, the next star can emerge quickly 
and Joshua is the best candidate after Cano and Triple G to be that star. In the United States, too. I'm not just talking about worldwide where it already exists for him. Look, I don't want to end on such an ominous note for Showtime, because if you look at their viewership numbers and how far they've come, this has still been an incredible year for them thus far. They've firmly established themselves as the top network televising boxing and have had such a strong showing thus far that even if their second half doesn't match the beginning, they'll still have had one of the best TV schedules of any network over the past few years. But still, the Anthony Joshua situation looms large, and it's not hard to think that if he ends up leaving and fighting on DAZN, it could have been prevented by putting more of an emphasis on marketing his fights better and making a better PR push for them. So on that note, let's transition to the preview section. And on July 7th on ESPN, we've got Jose Ramirez versus Danny O'Connor for the WBC Junior Welterweight title, along with, I'm going to butcher this, Mean Machine Igidis Kabaluskis versus Juan Carlos Abregu. Ramirez is somewhere between a 50 to 1 favorite and a 100 to 1 favorite, depending on where you look. Cavaluskis is somewhere between a 30 to 1 favorite and a 50 to 1 favorite. And while this is not a great date because it's a Saturday night that the UFC usually puts on one of their top fight cards of the year, these are not competitive matchups, and I will leave it at that. I don't bother watching fights like these live, and I am definitely way more interested in watching the UFC pay-per-view that night. Then, on July 14th, we've got Manny Pacquiao versus Lucas Matisse, which, as of this moment, apparently is happening. I'm going to leave aside the drama that has been getting that promotion just sort of happening, and originally it was supposed to be on pay-per-view, now it needs distribution, Really what complicates matters here is on that same night, ESPN is showing Regis Progres versus Juan Jose Velasco and Teofimo Lopez versus William Silva. The Pacquiao-Matisse fight has odds all under 2-1 to one at this point, and it is a extremely compelling matchup. You know, the Progres fight, it's, again, it's in that like 30-50-1 to 50 to 1 range I also, I don't want to leave out the World Boxing Super Series of Callum Smith versus George Groves, which is really a great fight. I mean, that's essentially a pickup fight. All the odds are well under 2-1. to one. Let's go through these card by card real quick. Quite frankly, the Pacquiao-Matisse fight is the perfect example of why networks have been historically loath to get into boxing. It is the perfect fight to put on ESPN, where it would draw a huge number of under normal circumstances. It's in a foreign country, but still fighting at like normal U.S. primetime. It's clearly going to be a good fight, but because no one knew until about a week and a half ago that the fight was actually going to happen, no network could plan out the best strategy to broadcast something like this. So if it does happen, end up happening on ESPN+, Plus, which certainly seems like the best option at this point, ESPN is going to be promoting the hell out of it in the week leading up to it, and then putting it on in competition with another fight on ESPN. I mean, that's just a tough situation to be in because one of these events is going to end up suffering from it. 
you know, I guess the only good news here is that at least the other fight, while it's a good story, it's not really a top-tier matchup. You know, one more thing to note here, and this also, if, if the World Boxing Super Series fight ends up on ESPN Plus as well, if the Pacquiao Matisse fight ends up being on ESPN Plus and you haven't subscribed yet for $4.99 a month, then what are you doing as a boxing fan? I mean, this is the best value you're ever going to get. Um, like I said, they haven't announced the World Boxing Super Series TV partner from the United States. Rumored to be ESPN Plus. I mean, this is that's a huge day of boxing for ESPN Plus if it gets both of them. Uh, next season of the World Boxing Super Series is going to be on DAZN. That is a whole another podcast all to itself. Look, I hope you guys had a great 4th of July holiday. I'll be back in two weeks. I'm going to look at the events leading up to the WWE signing with Fox, the ripple effects of what that meant for combat sports and what it will mean for boxing, And then I'm going to look at the WWE Network, which, as of right now, is the only successful sports live entertainment streaming product in the United States. And even labeling it a success is, quite frankly, an understatement. It has been the single smartest thing that WWE has done in a while. It's helped increase the net worth of the company tremendously, and it's given them a lot of leverage in negotiations with other entities, all of which we'll talk about next week. Again, enjoy the fights. I hope you all had a great 4th of July holiday. Hopefully this is out Thursday, if maybe Friday. And I did take notes from everybody. I'm trying to balance out the pod and make it go a little bit longer than 30 minutes. 60 minutes is kind of tough for me. I kind of lose track. Maybe I ramble too much. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm at 40 minutes right now. I'll try to keep it in that 40 to 45 minute range. If I can, I'll go longer. But I guess it just depends on the subject matter. Anyways, love chatting with you guys. Enjoy the fights, especially if all the if the Pacquiao Matisse fight actually does go down and it ends up on ESPN Plus. Enjoy it. Okay, bye guys. Did you get what you was looking for? Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.